Thank you, Dee. Thank you very much. Um, so today, as Dee mentioned, we'll have a very similar format as we had yesterday. Um, as we continue really to reflect on these, these limbs of awakening, these seven treasures. And yesterday we, we reflected on mindfulness, on investigation, on courage. And at the end of the day, I just began to introduce the, the theme of joyfulness, which is where we will begin today. But I think it would be helpful and probably beneficial if we began with just a short sitting period together. So again, if we can just find a, a posture where there's a, a marriage of wakefulness and softness, uprightness and easefulness in the body. Appreciating what mindfulness of the body offers us to ground, to connect, to calm, to gather our attention, to befriend, to learn the lessons of befriending, of the body of this moment, however it is. Settling and calming, inhabiting the body, inhabiting this moment. Cultivating a present moment recollection. Thoughts arise and pass, sounds arise and pass, sensations arise and pass. And the body remains grounded, a place we can return to. The body sitting, the body sensing, the body listening, the body breathing.
Okay, so coming, returning to contemplating this quality of joyfulness. As I mentioned in the early years of my practice, I began my path in the in a Tibetan community. And what actually truly inspired me to begin was encountering a community of people who had uh, been through so much and yet what was so so evident was the quality of joyful the qualities of joyfulness and generosity and when i met this i realized these people knew something that i didn't but it took me a long time to really appreciate just how pivotal and how important joyfulness is in our practice and in our lives like possibly some of you when I began to practice you know I was very over earnest you know and you know actually encouraged at times to do a great deal of striving and forcing and you know the path seemed anything but joyful it just felt hard and then something began to change for me to really appreciate that joyfulness is something that's not so far away from us that is really accessible and how much joyfulness eases our way through life and really how how central it is and necessary it is in the cultivation of any of the other wholesome qualities so i'd like to reflect on this a little bit beginning with the quote that i ended with yesterday when the Buddha says this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, this word PT is translated in many, many different ways as happiness, as bliss, as rapture, as joyfulness. Again, it is a spectrum word. And depending on the context that in which it is used, it tends to be translated in a particular way. If you're at all familiar with sort of the schemata of meditative development as it's seen in the early teachings, you see how much the Buddha emphasizes developing very profound levels of collectedness, sometimes known as absorption states or jhanas, where the, the mind and body really are, are absorbed into certain qualities of mind. And one of those qualities of mind is pity or rapture. Uh, and this, this is actually, associated, this, this particular translation of rapture tends to be associated with, with very deep meditative development when, when the mind and the body still in a, in a kind of profound collectedness. And that the taste of that is, is joyful. But the piti, joyfulness, is I think it's something more than a state that comes and goes. It has much to do with our way of being present in the world, our way of being present with ourselves. It, it, it has something to do with beginning to undo this negative attentional bias which is so drawn to see what is wrong and what is faulty and what is imperfect, and to learn to appreciate, to learn to appreciate what is well. 
you know, at this moment in your body, there may be places that are painful or tense or stressed. And yet there's probably parts of your body that are really quite well. And do we notice that? Do we actually, are we actually aware of that? When we, when we walk into a room, how often our attention is drawn to, to what needs fixing or what we would alter. You know, do we appreciate what is actually quite well? We do not make ourselves joyful, but we learn to make room for joyfulness through how we direct our attention, through the quality of our attention and how we focus, how we focus. I think one thing is very clear to us is that our, our whole system thrives in the climate of joyfulness. And our system tends to stress in the absence of joyfulness. Uh, some of you have heard me tell this before, but when I, when I used to work at the university in Exeter, in the psychology department, the psychology offices and professors and admin staff all occupied one floor. And at the end of each of this floor, at the end of the corridor on this floor, there was a kitchen on each end. And the end where I was working, I called it the happy kitchen. Because, you know, there were post-its all over the world saying, you know, help yourself to milk. You know, I brought biscuits in today. You know, don't worry about the washing up. We all pitch in, you know, and, you know, there's tea bags in the cupboard. Feel free. You know, hope you have a good day. There were post-its all over the cabinets, which were, you know, very invitational, very generous. And at the other end of the hallway, I what I called the unhappy kitchen. You know, and again, the cupboards were covered with post-it notes, you know, don't leave a dirty cup in the sink. You know, the milk is mine. You know, the biscuits are not yours. You know, it was all these kind of scolding notes. And I thought, now, which kitchen do I want to live in? You know, which kitchen do I actually want to inhabit? And realize, you know, I actually don't want to live in the unhappy kitchen. And that the unhappy kitchen is constructed. You know, it's almost a collective construction almost a collective agreement that, you know, we will frown upon the world, you know, and the happy kitchen was also a collective agreement. So joyfulness has much to do with thriving. It has much to do with, with flourishing. It has much to do with cultivating a climate inwardly that actually we feel resourced. We feel resourced to meet the difficult. So joyfulness is not just a state. I think of it as an abiding. This is the place where our hearts can make their home. Joyfulness is a quality where our minds can make their home. In the Dhammapada, one of the early texts, much loved early texts, there is a, a section where the Buddha says, Abide in happiness, free from hostility among those who are hostile. Abide in joyfulness, free from distress among those who are miserable. Abide in happiness, free from busyness among those who are busy. Joyfully we live, those who cling to nothing. 
joyfully we live, those that cling to nothing. I think there's a couple of really important messages being pointed out in this teaching. One is that joyfulness is cultivated in the midst of all things, in the midst of all things. That it is an inner, inwardly generated quality. That happiness and joyfulness are not dependent upon having ideal or perfect conditions in our lives. And that is so crucial, you know, because we, we find ourselves so often that, uh, that the quality of our inner world, the quality of our hearts and minds is almost being dictated to by the conditions that we find ourselves in. You know, if we're amongst a group of people who are all kind of, you know, complaining and groaning, you know, going, oh, no, I think I'll just join in, you know, or, you know, if life is, is difficult or challenging, you know, we can feel ourselves rolling up our sleeves, you know, putting joy on one side, you know, thinking, now I need to get to work on this. The Buddha so often pointed out that, you know, we all live in a world of conditions that we cannot control. And we are touched by those conditions. We are not invulnerable. And it's deeply important that we are touched because that allows appropriate and wise response. It allows the, the heart to soften. But the Buddha equally pointed out that we can find a way of living where we are not a hostage to the world of conditions where our inner world is not being dictated to by the conditions that we find ourselves in. Abide in happiness, free from busyness amongst those who are busy. Isn't that interesting? How the Buddha is pointing to busyness as being one of the, you know, one of the saboteurs of joyfulness, spaciousness, ease, easefulness. We all have things we need to do in our lives. We all have things we need to attend to. But busyness is a state of mind. Hmm? Busyness is truly a state of mind in which joyfulness is often, often sacrificed. So the Buddha speaks of joyfulness in two ways. He speaks about sensual joyfulness and non-sensual joyfulness. And the, the accurate translations is that it's fleshly and non-fleshly joyfulness. There is much in life that is sensually delightful, that gladdens our heart in nature, in art, in music, in being with people that we care about and love. This is not something to be kind of sneered at you know as being kind of very you know unspiritual or secondary but it is something to appreciate and to be celebrated when you step outside and just you know walk somewhere in nature and allow your mind to still you feel yourself being touched and your heart gladdened you're making room for joyfulness and often in these, you know, you listen to a wonderful piece of music. And again, to really appreciate it, we need to allow our minds and our bodies to calm and to listen wholeheartedly. And then we feel touched. 
we feel gladdened, we feel appreciative. So once more, we're not contriving joyfulness. We're making room. We're making space for joyfulness through the stilling of our own busyness. And in those moments, um, I think what is important, we have a taste of our own capacity for gladness. We have a taste of our own capacity to be uplifted, for the mind to be brightened, for the heart to snap, to, to smile. And it is an innate capacity we learn to develop and to cultivate. Joyfulness, like all of the awakening factors, you know, lives, uh, all the awakening qualities, lives as a seed of potentiality within our own hearts. And we learn to, to nurture and to care for that seed. I do get the impression that many people, too many people, live with a joyfulness deficit. There can be many reasons for this. You know, life can be really difficult. You know, you may be facing chronic illnesses, you know, family difficulties, um, feelings of failure. That so many people can live with a joyfulness deficit. And then, you know, our tendency to focus on what is broken and imperfect and lacking, both inwardly and outwardly. We dwell upon those imperfections and joyfulness is leached from our hearts and lives. And as I mentioned yesterday, you know, there, there are kind of inner beliefs and patterns that we often have to deal with or understand if we're going to be free to really develop this, this, this quality of joyfulness. You know, do we believe there's, there's more virtue in suffering? You know, do we believe that we're unworthy of joyfulness? Do we believe that joyfulness will be kind of a, a reward in the future for having borne and endured suffering in the present? We might believe that joyfulness and happiness is only possible through sustained contact with pleasant sensations and experience. I think it's so important to remember the ways that joyfulness resources our capacity for compassion. These are often said to go hand in hand, joyfulness and compassion. We are, when we live on the front, you know, when we're very much on the front lines of, of, of dukkha, or front lines of suffering, it is so easy to become exhausted. Um, so easy to become burned out. And then we feel like we, you know, we use this phrase compassion fatigue, which I'm not sure is really what's happening. I think what's happening is, is we, we are not resourced inwardly. We are not resourced inwardly. During the pandemic, I was doing some teaching with NHS frontline staff who were working on COVID wards and you know, some mentioned that, you know, it got to a point where they could no longer afford to feel or to be touched by what was going on because it was just too much and it was just too overwhelming. And as we explored this together, you know, understandably, you know, a day that's spent looking after very, very ill people 
takes so much effort, takes so much effort that, you know, it seemed frivolous to think that, you know, I need to be resourcing myself, myself. But as we talked about it, you know, they and, and you know, did some, you know, had some pointers and, and possibilities. Um, people reported to me what a difference it made to actually find the spaces in their day to cultivate joyfulness, to cultivate joyfulness in being able to turn up on those front lines. I think joyfulness is what helps the resilience of our hearts. It helps the resilience of our hearts. It, it helps for, for courage, that willingness just to be able to show up without our teeth being gritted. To, it, it is something that allows the, the mind to be truly a friend and a refuge. Non, so it, it is important in our days to, to make those connections with joyfulness in whatever ways we can, whether it's just taking a moment to step outside and really appreciate the sunlight on the leaves or the laughter of a child or you know the, the dance of change in the seasons, just to really begin to allow ourselves to be touched and to taste and to retaste that joyfulness. Non-sensual joyfulness. What does the Buddha mean by this? He's pointing to an inwardly generated joyfulness that can be cultivated in the midst of any conditions, both the pleasant and the unpleasant. He's talking about the, an inwardly generated and nourished quality that is not dependent upon being in contact with pleasant sensations, sights, sounds, taste, touch, thoughts. It's a very powerful quality and potentiality that has a very deep effect on uprooting craving. Because we really see how much this never enough mind, this never enough impulse um, is so rooted in a culture of inner deficit that leads us to, to look outwardly, to externalize happiness, to look outwardly with hungry eyes, needing and wanting. Craving really rests upon that sense of inner deficit. Craving really rests upon the externalization of the sources of happiness. I, I think that is, for me, that's such an important understanding that without the externalization of the sources of happiness, there is no ground for craving to arise. There's no sense of need. There's no sense of there being something lacking in the light of inwardly cultivated and generated joyfulness. So this is where I think also there's a, a truly a, a real ethical dimension to joyfulness. As we, as we give up the pursuit of craving and the insistence that the world and other people make us happy. Okay. To 
give up the insistence that the world and other people make us happy. How would you feel if someone, you know, that you care about or someone that you're close to or even someone that you don't know came up to you and looked you in the eye and said, make me happy? You would probably actually feel like I don't really have the power to do that. You know, I don't actually have the power to do that. And yet somehow we don't always get the message that goes the other way of, you know, how often there's that kind of quiet, not sometimes not so quiet expectation in our own hearts and our own minds when we look at the world and say, make me happy. There's a wonderful quote from the, a Chinese tradition that says, if you keep a green bat branch alive in your heart, the singing bird will come. If you keep a green branch alive in your heart, the singing bird will come. If we make the space for joyfulness, make the room for joyfulness, if there is sensitivity and mindfulness in place, the singing bird will come. We will find ourselves being touched, gladdened. In the way that the Buddha speaks about meditative development, he very much puts joyfulness, happiness, as being the forerunner, the forerunner of a calm and collected mind and heart. He says, in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. Joyfulness is also the nature of a deeply collected and unified heart and mind. I found, find this really quite, quite significant. That in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. How many times have you found yourself, you know, sitting on a cushion and struggling to be mindful, you know, struggling to be attentive, you know, with a mind that's kind of tight and contracted and, you know, it's so difficult, you know, your attention keeps slipping away. Have we really taken care of the conditions inwardly that allow attention to find a true foundation? Have we really set a cultivated that climate of appreciation, of well-being, of easefulness, of surrendering this sense of exaggerated responsibility? Have we really cultivated the climate of, of softness, of listening, of wholeheartedness? The lovely, the lovely, in which attention can find a true foundation. As I mentioned, we, we learn again and again, I think, in our lives and in our practice to, to make room and to make space for joyfulness and to, to cultivate our capacity for gladness, which doesn't depend on the absence of the difficult, but in the midst of the difficult. And I think we learn a, a very important lesson about coexistence. Um, when we see ourselves 
lost in a version of despair, we might step outside and listen to the birds or the touch of the wind on our face. When we find ourselves struggling with pain or illness, we might know, begin to notice where in our body there is wellness. When we find ourselves lost in, in judgment or blame of ourselves or others, we might remember we can appreciate. Joy and sorrow do not exclude each other. They can live side by side. I know when I have um, been teaching uh, people who are living with chronic illnesses, you know, very understandably, um, you know, the attention is consistently drawn to what is painful, what is wrong, what is broken. And what seems to be actually really helpful is to, to really cultivate this sense of coexistence. Yes, this is really, truly, you know, ill or painful or difficult. And yet the lobes of the ears are quite fine or the touch of the lips together is quite fine. And to really begin to shift the attention to what is really difficult, to what is easeful. Because we see in the presence of you know, great difficulty in our lives, whether it's in the body, whether it's in families, whether it's in emotional, the contractedness that happens doesn't have room for the appreciation of what is well. Appreciating what is well is not in any way to, to dismiss or to belittle or, to, or, or not care for what is difficult, but to be providing this contrast in our lives, I think, is actually quite crucial so that we're not swallowed by the difficult, so that we're not overwhelmed by the difficult. Joyfulness is not always something very dramatic. It's often something that is, is very, very calm and very quiet. And actually, I think it's really useful to notice that every wholesome quality, when it's present in our lives, in our hearts and our minds, has a taste of happiness. You know, when we find ourselves living with, with a moment of generosity, that moment of generosity has a taste of happiness. You know, when we find ourselves in a, in a place of spaciousness, it has a taste of happiness. When we, we find ourselves, you know, genuinely, uh, genuinely rooted in a sense of kindness or compassion, they have a taste of joyfulness and gladness. They're not a, a, a they're not affected, they're not neutral in tone. They have an effective tone. It's really so helpful to see that when we when actually we see that when we when we get lost in something that is unskillful or unwholesome, you know, aversion or fear or jealousy or resentment or clinging, it also has a taste, doesn't it? It really has a taste of, of unhappiness. And I think we begin to appreciate this is the landscape that we're living in. This is the landscape we're living in. But again, we may very well have more choices than we appreciate about what we cultivate and what we fast. What we fast. 
sometimes gladness is just the, you know, the really simple awareness that we continue to breathe and to live, to to celebrate the changes we see inwardly. The Tibetan tradition, known in the early texts, the Buddha speaks of the joyfulness in beginning to see the unskillful and the unwholesome fall away. We might appreciate the spaciousness, the joyfulness and freedom in every moment that we put down our arguments with the unarguables. When we're able to say, you know, really let go of those, the, those arguments that this shouldn't be happening, it's not right, it's not fair, you know, why me? Putting that down, we begin to feel, you know, we begin to really appreciate that, you know, we are part of the dukkha strain, the dukkha thread. We're not exempt. And we don't always get the self we crave. And we can make peace with that. We can make peace with that. There's another, I think, really quite wonderful proverb from the Chinese. It says, I, I love this one. It says, you cannot prevent the birds of the air from flying over your head. You need not let them nest in your hair. You cannot prevent the birds of the air from flying over your head, but you need not let them nest in your hair. This is something quite lovely, you know, appreciating that, you know, we're not in control of many of the conditions of our lives, you know, that we all encounter as human beings, dukkha and vulnerability. You know, we all encounter, you know, uh, experiences and moments and events that we would rather not be happening and they fly over our head but we need not let them nest in our hair we need not take hold of them and surround them with fear and anxiety and aversion um, we need not cultivate the tendency to obsess to ruminate and to dwell this is, this is possible for all of us. It, it's a training for our cushions. It's a training for our lives. Um, but we might begin to appreciate that gladness and joyfulness is somewhat closer to us than we initially felt. Okay, so thank you. So be, before we move on to the next quality, I just want to take a pause moment and see if anyone has any any questions or comments or reflections they'd like to bring forward, you know, please just use it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.